0: Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is what doesn't kill you, food industry insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And I'm delighted to welcome in the studio today, uh, Rick Shepro, who has just written an article called Degrees of Freshness, the Contemporary International Market. For hyper fresh seafood, which he will be presenting this week at the Oxford University symposium on food and cookery, Rick has been studying seafood markets around the world for over thirty years as a lawyer, an economist, a professor, and an amateur cook of considerable talent. Welcome to the studio, Rick. Thank you so much for joining me today. So, um, tell me, nice like, to be
1: here—it's
0: great to have you. So, what, how, what, what made you write this article? How did you get this gig?
1: Well, the. Um I've been a symposiast, as they say, at the Oxford Food Symposium for uh-huh. no, for a number of years, and this year the topic is markets. Right. And most people, I thought, would be presenting papers about uh, what's the the current uh, market buzzword of hyperlocal. Right. And I thought about how the the seafood market has become more and more international. Yeah. And um, Particularly, uh, well, at the high end of the market and at the low end of the market. So I've been interested in uh, seafood and markets for a long time. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, years ago in the in the 1970s being in a restaurant in Marseille that had its own fishing boats, and you walked in and there was this beautiful display of fresh seafood sitting on ice and I remember thinking I'll take a picture of this maybe when we finish lunch and um, uh, because it's just so pretty and after lunch all there was was ice (laughs) because all they had brought was that they had brought in from the boats uh, the amount of fish that they knew they needed for the number of reservations that they had for lunch. Amazing. And that was their idea of, of hyper-fresh. Yeah. Um, but that's changed very much um, with new techniques for shipping fish, new techniques for uh, taking care of fish. It's just a, it's a very new international world.
0: Well, you talk about the... Um the reconfiguration of the global fishing industry. And so is that what you're referring to, like this advances in cold chain technology and also the fact that people can ship via air freight overnight must have had a tremendous impact? When did that start, actually? When did they start doing that?
1: There have been lots of different uh, technological improvements that have all come together to create this. And probably the most dramatic example um, right now is... um, some of the, the round trips that uh, tuna take. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are tuna that are caught, say, off Gloucester, Massachusetts, and then sold for the first time at the tuna market on the Gloucester Dock. If they're really, really high-quality tuna, they'll be bought and shipped to Japan well, they'll be sold at the tuna auction market, at the Tsukiji market, the world's largest seafood market. Mm-hmm. And they might very well be bought by someone who supplies um, a really high-end sushi restaurant in New York or Boston. Right. And the fish will make it all the way back.
0: Amazing.
1: And that sounds um, bizarre in this day when some people are worried about lamb from New Zealand. Um, Having too big a carbon footprint,
0: right? But that's happening.
1: That. That's happening in the seafood industry.
0: That happens a lot in the seafood industry. I mean, all of our food is globally traded now. But I think that, you know, uh, Paul Greenberg, and I'm sure you saw this, just published his new book, American Catch. Are you familiar with him? I am. Four He's, Fish, fantastic yeah. writer, great guy.
1: He's a, a great writer and researcher on yeah. fish. Yeah.
0: And his new book, American Catch, just came out, and it talks about how much of our seafood goes out of this country, and how much we import, I don't know of what. I mean, right. farmed salmon, farmed tilapia, farmed shrimp. Meanwhile, we're exporting everything that's local to us and good.
1: Sometimes we're exporting it and then re-importing it. <laughs> but um, what, a lot of what he focuses on um, is um, the broader market. Like with shrimp, um, there's a huge market in... Uh, Low-end or commodity shrimp, yeah. and then um, the kinds of thing that that I'm talking about are that I've called the hyper fresh market um, is a higher end thing, where you you might have um, uh, head-on shrimp from the Gulf of Mexico, um, sent from Texas to uh, to other places. With some shellfish like langoustine. Um, they're actually shipped live um, Mm -hmm. for the best quality. And lobsters, of course, that's always been happening.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, they kind of have to because, I mean, a dead lobster is going to be a poisonous lobster if you're... (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right? I mean, in fact, one of the things that you um, talked about, which I thought was really interesting, was uh, perhaps just showing the geek in me, but the whole sort of decomposition chain of fish and the fact that fish are from colder climes than most other animals... So talk about, a little bit about what can go wrong with fish and how easily damaged it can be. And then we can talk a little bit about the packaging technology and the cold chain technology that's changed that.
1: Sure. Um, both um, animals, land animals um, and seafood, um, have a lot of the spoilage takes place because of bacteria and enzymes that are, are there uh, in the animal while it's alive mm-hmm. and these are often beneficial bacteria and useful enzymes while they're alive, but after the animal dies, uh, it starts to decompose. And for land animals, refrigeration dramatically slows those biological processes. So, refrigeration is very effective um, for keeping meat, um, even at a controlled way for aging meat, but it doesn't work very well at all for seafood, which is why we think of seafood as so much more perishable. And one of the reasons it doesn't work is that uh, these enzymes and bacteria um, through evolution have coexisted with the fish at a much lower temperature than they do in warm-blooded animals. And so um, cooling them to a normal refrigerator temperature doesn't really slow the activity very much at all, Mm -hmm. and the fish will still spoil. That's why fish gets put on ice. Um, The best storage is really right around 32 degrees Fahrenheit, zero degrees Celsius, or just below, because fish doesn't freeze until a little bit uh, below what we normally think of as the freezing point. And fatty fish freezes at an even lower temperature.
0: Really? Why is that? Because fat takes longer to freeze? Why right,
1: right. It just uh, there's less water in it, um, ah. and uh, the freezing of the other tissue, um, and most water doesn't freeze right at thirty-two unless it's um, unless it's uh, purified water or uh-huh. distilled water. It freezes at a slightly lower temperature. Hmm. So thirty-two to thirty-six, that's a good temperature for uh, for storage of fish.
0: Right, and when you freeze fish, I think the cell structure breaks down, and when you thaw it out it becomes mushier and that's why right like something happens with freezing that they try to avoid right. freezing it, it,
1: it destroys the texture with most fish mm-hmm. um, with some things like um, octopus or squid um, that may be a, give a beneficial tenderizing effect but right. um, when the freezing technology first got uh, really efficient in the 50s and 60s lots of people talked about how this was a revolution and it was fresher than fresh because it was f- frozen when it was fresh, right. and nobody talks that way anymore.
0: <laughs> Although they still say that about uh, frozen vegetables, right?
1: Uh, some people do. I don't.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Now, let me ask you this. Who, how, how do they define, fr- when you're talking about hyper-fresh... How do you define that, and who gets to make that definition? Who well, that's, a, that?
1: that's an interesting question, because I think the, the technology and the ability to transport has actually changed what we mean by fresh. Mm-hmm. And fresh used to mean uh, just out of the water or said to be just out of the water in practice a day or two. Um, nowadays, people are more likely to talk about freshness in terms of the condition of the fish. Um, And you still use the same, um, it's mostly by observation. um, How do the eyes look, how do the scales look, how does the skin look, um, what's the condition of the gills, uh, if the gills are still there. Um, People have tried, um, and big processors have have an interest in doing this, people have tried to measure freshness um, in more scientific ways, by sampling microbes and things like that. That's not so successful, partly because it's just it's a more complicated process. The, these, this decay of the flesh is very complicated. And then partly because um, you can have um, a high degree of mar- microbes, which might mean they'll cause it to deteriorate in the future, and it won't have a very long shelf life, but it may still be great for eating that day. Mm-hmm. And you see that sometimes with, um, like in uh, open-air markets in Sicily, there are fantastically fresh fish that you can see. They're still sold. They're still in rigor mortis. Um, and sometimes they're not even iced. Um, well, if you're going to buy it and cook it that day, that'll be a fantastic fish. Right. But um, kind of like when you leave the... The milk bottle out of the refrigerator for for two hours, it won't have spoiled, but it's not going to have a very long shelf life, and that's that's what can happen with uh, oh. proliferation of microbes in fish. Oh, that's
0: interesting. Absolutely. So, um, one of the techniques that you described was Ikijime. Did I say that right?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I, I thought I, that I was think fascinating,
0: so. and I, it had so many parallels with the um, with the livestock industry, which I'm more knowledgeable about um, because it's. You know, it does this. It's a it's a less stressful uh, end to the life of the fish. And of course, most people don't think of fish as being particularly sentient. But clearly, like every other being, they're capable of feeling fear, fight or flight. So, what is ikijime and what does it do?
1: So, um, it there is a strong parallel to what people are doing, um, and like with uh, livestock, some of the pra- it's a practice that began in Japan um, hundreds of years ago. It's been refined. Um, it's viewed as a more humane way to kill a fish, mm-hmm. um, and to result in much longer, uh, much longer freshness, uh, better condition of, of the meat. Um, it might not sound like it's a more humane way of killing fish, um, because what what's done is um, a spike is placed into the ganglial mass or brain of the fish, which stops it from sending out basically signals that cause the flesh to start stop uh, start deteriorating. Right. And then they pass a wire through the whole spinal cord and out the other end. But if you think of that compared to um, the most typical way of killing a fish is to catch it in a big net with hundreds of pounds of other fish crushing the flesh and then um the 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 fish flops around on the deck of a boat um until it dies of asphyxiation (laughs) and (laughs) and so this is um you know that's what people have done for hundreds of years um although certain people in japan have been doing this for hundreds of years it's become um very widespread even among sport fishermen who now find that this Ikejima method is more humane and gives them a better product there's an Australian website Ikejima.com that (laughs) you plug in the name of the type of fish and it tells you exactly where to put in this spike wow Um, it's uh it's an interesting process
0: now this is not uh this is not something that you could adopt in the fishing industry, though. Obviously, this is only for the for the masa type of restaurant or something like that, where it would be the very you know like a hand picked catch.
1: It, that's right, because you know, it has to be done to each individual fish. Yeah. Some of these fish Super then, then are, um, are uh, individually wrapped. Yeah. Um, that's why a, a great restaurant can have a particular, uh fishing boat that it has a relationship with, and they know that um, if there's any fish to be had, it'll be um, carefully treated from the mm-hmm. moment it comes out of the water. Uh, sometimes they're wrapped in bubble wrap.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then th- this is also a technique that can be used on a little more uh, broad scale in high-end aquaculture.
0: Mm-hmm cool listen let's take a quick break right now and then come back i want to talk a little bit about how the restaurant industry is driving some of these changes and some of the pioneers in the hyper freshness sounds good stay with us we'll be right back to talk more about this show.
1: hey i'm michael Harlan Turkell, host of the food scene do you love us do you really do you count on us for real food news and content but we need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a nonprofit organization, which means we depend on underwriting, grants, and the support of members like you to keep broadcasting. Help keep our voice alive. Visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org and click the Donate button today. We promise to never stop in our mission to create a world that's more sustainable, equitable, and delicious by expanding the way eaters think about food. Thanks for listening, and thanks for showing your support.
0: And we are back. (laughs) This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're talking today with Rick Shepro, who has written a paper that will be uh, presented at the Oxford University Symposium on Food and Cookery uh, in the next week. And um, Rick has written uh, about how the advances in technology and preparation have really changed the seafood market um, so let's let's backtrack a little bit and talk about where where did this start this started with basically the le Bernardin, with the Lacose duo
1: in in the u.s um, that really is is the start mm-hmm. of course there've always been um, and they're almost an endangered species now the the, the coastal restaurant that gets its fish from a boat that um, comes the next, uh, they're caught the same day. Right. Um, but most of the time, um, for many decades, um, most restaurants that are there perched on the water are not getting their fish right from, the, um, from a boat that's, that's caught at the same day.
0: Yeah,
1: um, exactly. And no matter where you go, um, in the U.S., in Europe, uh, in Asia. Um, but, um, um, uh, the, Lacos siblings, um, uh, had a restaurant in, in, um, uh, they were from a fishing family in Brittany mm-hmm. and then had a, a, wonderful restaurant in, in Paris, Le Bernardin, um, rather than, um, uh, creating an empire with lots of restaurants. Of course, they closed in Paris, their two-star restaurant and opened in New York, um, in 1986, and opened this uh, restaurant that Le Bernardin that's there today. Absolutely. And
0: helped by the uh, excellent Eric Repair. Yeah, <laughs> and <of> the station. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it,
1: they um, set out to find the same quality of, of seafood mm-hmm. that they had found um, from their sources in Brittany, and the waters had equally good fish. But they found that um, they were having trouble finding suppliers who would would treat it with um, enough respect and care that it would be in the condition that they wanted. Right. And um, so uh, Gilbert Lecoeus used to, um, when he found something that was really high quality, he would cook it for the seafood merchants, and. Educate them about what a difference it could make to the uh, to how a dish tastes, and they um, rejected fish. Um, There were others um, doing this at the same time, Mm -hmm. but um, uh, they were the leaders. And uh, Eric Ripert and and others have. Just Jean Louis Pardan was a major, Jean-Louis major, Paladin, mover in, right?
0: Not just in seafood, but in all fruits and vegetables, and I mean everything that came into his restaurant had to be of a very specific quality. And he educated farmers and livestock producers as well as uh, fishmongers uh, in those same kinds of. It was like they had to bring that French sensibility over to the United States. We just didn't have that. We didn't have that culture, basically, of demanding that level of quality from our food, and right. they really they changed the game for it.
1: And they they found um, great local suppliers, mm-hmm. uh, which they still use. But they also um, bring in fish at, at uh, greater distance when it suits their needs, from whether from the from Japan or Alaskan salmon, right? Um, or uh, uh, Turbo or Sol from the North Sea, Yeah, um, they know what they're looking for, and they can get it in a variety of ways thanks to this
0: international market. Incredible, because, I mean, that is a, tr- a tribute to how successful that cold chain and that new technology has become, because, you know, we're not, in Rhode Island, for instance, there's a couple of new outfits. I wrote an article a couple of years ago about Um, These boats and this um, platform, sort of computer platform called uh, Trace and Trust. And Mm -hmm. just as these guys have their relationships with overseas markets and dealers... These local restaurants in New England have a relationship with certain captains or fishing fleets. Right. And they're they're also sourcing fish that isn't necessarily all that familiar to the American consumer. There's a lot of new... They're trying to get people more interested in eating more local fish. And that makes me wonder why the locavore thing hasn't really worked here in spite... I mean, yes, we can get all this great stuff, but it is curious to me. That uh, buying local seafood and getting it off boats like my friend Steve Arnold's, you know, uh, the Helen Mary, like, why isn't that more of a fad? I mean, I think it's strange that 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 hasn't taken off more.
1: I I do, too, because no matter how high quality something that comes um, a long distance um, is, there's a, a magic to eating something that's local.
0: Absolutely. And
1: having it prepared... In accordance with the um, local traditions right. too, uh, those are those are terribly important. Um, yeah. I think Le Bernardin and um, some other restaurants um, introduced monkfish to um, a lot of American consumers in That's the true. 80s, which mm-hmm. um, which wasn't eaten that much uh, in the past. Um, I remember in the 70s, uh, Madeline Kamen, the Great French cookbook yeah, I love, writer, I love and, her. Yeah. Um, she um, talked about um, being in Maine and um, collecting mussels on the seashore, and having um, local people come up to her and say, "We don't eat those. You're looking for clams." <laughs> and so, so these things, these things do change, yeah. and 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 people do get educated. It's interesting. Sometimes the connoisseurship comes first and then the supply disappears and an example of that is the seafood markets in Venice where there's this long history of connoisseurship particularly for the the shellfish that they call scampi in in Venice but uh langostino in southern Italy and langostine in France and there hasn't been any of that in the Venice Lagoon for uh maybe a hundred years yeah and um but there's such a tradition of that being an important dish that they seek out the best ones. And at the Rialto Market, you see langoustine from Sicily and slightly cheaper langoustine from Norway. Yeah. Um,
0: So even though it's no longer indigenous, it's still part of the culture there.
1: Connoisseurship really, really drives markets in a lot of ways.
0: What about aquaculture? Like, let's talk a little bit about that because you mention it and... um, You know, most people are kind of poo-poo aquaculture, but I I know from doing this radio program um, that aquaculture is really coming along at a smart clip in terms of um, better quality food, not using as much fish to feed fish. There's a guy down in Chile named Scott; um, his company is called Verlasso, and they're feeding uh, they're feeding their fish a sort of interesting mix of fish and yeast, which gives delivers the same. Bang of amino acids and omega-3s that salmon need he farms salmon um, but without using as much fish to produce the same quantity of salmon it's very good quality fish I've tried it I'm not a great big fish lover but you know I, this was very very good and um, I think aquaculture has gotten a bad rap and I think it's really changing fast and I'm wondering how this technology you know are they going to be able to do more with aquaculture using the kinds of technology you describe? the better cold chain, the better wrapping, the better catching, the better killing, mm-hmm. um, all of those things could combine to make a much more robust aquaculture industry, don't you think?
1: I think so. There's a lot happening in aquaculture. Um, you could talk endlessly about the good and bad points of aquaculture. Um, but one thing is clear, that in terms of freshness, um, properly handled Aquaculture products have a huge advantage um, over wild fish, and I'm not talking about the question of whether wild-caught fish tastes better or or things like that. But um, with properly controlled aquaculture, you can they use the term harvest the fish yeah. um, right when you need it. You can pack it and ship it immediately. There can be a regular supply um, to regular customers, um, which allows you a steady stream of income, so you can invest in in this good technology. Mm-hmm. You don't have a, you know when the fish is going to be caught. It's not caught days out at sea and and has to wait to right. to come in and be packaged. And then um, one thing that happens is. Uh, Since they know when they're going to harvest the fish, they can time the feeding schedule. Fish don't have to eat every day. Uh And the fish can be harvested at a time when there's nothing in its digestive tract. And that's where the spoilage um, really begins in a fish. And And so um, the freshness advantage for um, this Verlaso salmon for the salmon, um, La Belle Rouge salmon in Scotland, right. um, and some of the salmon that's, that's um, king salmon is produced now in New Zealand at a very high level. Um, all those things have a tremendous advantage in freshness, mm-hmm. even yeah, when I, they travel long distances.
0: I was really interested by that and also by the sort of branding and labeling, the marketing efforts that you could link to all of those um, initiatives, because then you can have people associate La Belle Rouge with, you know, a certain level, or Verlasso, it's, you know you're going to get a certain level of quality and you can depend on that just as people depend on, uh, you know, certified Angus beef they think is going to be really great or, you know what I mean? like Right. It's, it's, it gives you a real advantage, I think, in marketing and, and becoming a much bigger player in the seafood industry.
1: It does. it um, Some people would say that makes it boring because it's more uniform. It's not a wild product. Mm. It's not like... Um, Uh, some uh, wild game that you might find more interesting than beef. Um, But it's a tremendous advantage for a chef who's trying to control all the variables that he can. I've noticed that at Le Benadin, um, they often serve um, farmed salmon at lunch, and wild salmon at dinner.
0: Now, how were you able to tell and that? Do they say it on the They menu? say it.
1: They say it. They're, okay. they're, they're quite clear about their sources. The the French have this um, set of quality protocols called La Belle Rouge that apply to a lot of different kinds of products. Uh, there are La Belle Rouge chickens, and some yeah, people will only get a chicken that has achieved the La Belle Rouge um, title. And the first... Fish to be certified as Label Rouge um, was um, a farmed salmon raised in Scotland, okay. and uh, the Hélène Ducasse restaurants sometimes will say uh, salmon Label Rouge uh, on the menu and uh, specifying that product.
0: Fascinating. Well, if I were a restaurant owner, like say I were Darden restaurants or something, and I had like, you know, I think they're the ones who own Capital Grill. Do you know that steakhouse? Yeah. yeah. And it's a pretty high end steakhouse, and they really have, you know, very good steaks. And if I were running an establishment like that where I could hit that price point, I would definitely want to market a piece of fish as having a label from some trusted supplier that I could then. Continue to boost and sort of almost partner with because you always know what you're going to have, right? And that's that's the biggest problem with uh, with wild caught anything. I think is that you're you know it's qu- the quality can be variable, the size can be variable. It's hard to portion control. There's a lot of different elements that go into making something work well in the center of a plate in a restaurant. Isn't that right, Missy? <laughs> it's
1: it's uh, it's much harder to um, market a label with a wild fish. Yeah. Um people have tried to do that in the salmon industry with some success um, particularly by identifying a particular river. Right. Uh, the Copper River yes, right. um is famous cuz it's the southernmost Alaskan salmon river so their fish appear in the market first and um
0: And they are awfully good.
1: It um, um they it's almost like when the Beaujolais Nouveau um created a market by saying we're the first wine of the vintage.
0: Yeah. The difference is, is that Beaujolais Nouveau usually sucks. <laughs> yeah. I don't like it. I never like it. I never liked it back when I was young and I don't like it now. Well Rick, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining me today. Is there some place where people can read this paper if they want to? Is there a website um, or a
1: it um- it is on the um, the website of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. Um, it's only available right now to participants in the symposium, but it will be available later mm-hmm. to everyone and um, then be published in uh, a book that the Uh, Symposium puts out every year.
0: Fantastic. It sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's really interesting. I learned a lot from reading that piece. It was really well done. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. And thanks to my listeners for joining me today. Thank you to my engineer, Jack, and my sponsor. We'll see you next week. And don't forget to hit the donate button, people. Pony up the bucks, man. It's a fundraising drive, and we need some money here. Please, hit the donate button. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network. So long for now.